Welcome everybody. It's good to see you. Um, Dr. Lee has been here before. I think this is your third time. And he's become a very dear friend of ours. Um, his bio is probably 10 pages long, but tonight it's just a bullet point of four points. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, then I'm going to tell you his topic. He is the medical director of the outpatient services program at Ridgeview Hospital. He has been in practice as a psychiatrist and addictionologist for 38 years. He is part of the clinical faculty at Emory University School of Medicine. He's the father of two grown children and two grandchildren. Tonight, he's going to talk about the different forms of depression, explaining when medication is necessary and when it is not. He will also address the biological basis for the disease of addiction. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for you, Dr. Lee, then walk him to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for men and women like Dr. Lee, God, that share their time, their talents, their skills to help us, uh, to give us hope and encouragement, Lord, to educate us. We just pray now that you'll speak through him in a mighty way, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay. Well, I'm Dr. Lee, and I have a website, uh, drleemd.org. And on that website are booklets that I've written over the years. And the uh, first part of my discussion is going to be about depression, the different forms of depression, and try to explain that. And uh, on, on that website is a, um, are two booklets. One is the psychiatric treatment of the adult. And this is for folks that are over 26 years old. And then there's another one called the psychiatric treatment of the young adult. And this is for folks that are between the ages of 18 and 26. And there are a little, it's different. It is some different. And so I encourage you that if you have a child uh, in, the, in the younger group to read that one. And if you have uh, older children or if you have parents that you're concerned about, that um, the, the uh, uh, psychiatric treatment of the adult. Now, the, the second part of the discussion will be about addiction. And there is a fairly comprehensive booklet I wrote called Addiction as a Medical Disease. And it's about a 50-page booklet that's on my website that you can uh, read on the website or download or whatever you want to do. So uh, hopefully that will be, be helpful for you. So to begin with, um, depression when I, I have found over the years when I talk about depression that I, I have realized that folks um, think of this in a lot of different ways. You know, because we all have times when we get depressed. You know, things happen and we get depressed and we just feel sad or we feel empty uh, and it might be a spell for a week or so or something like that. And that, that is the emotion or the feeling of depression. But what can happen is that when you've had uh, multiple losses in your life, um, either because uh, you've had medical problems or because uh, someone has died, uh, you know, if you're, let's say you're 18 years old and your father died when you were 15 and, um, and then there was a lot of financial hardship and things like that, and you're struggling, you can have depression. 
and that depression can affect your sleep pattern, it can affect uh, your energy, uh, your ability to communicate right, or you can end up getting angry or uh, reactionary to everything and feel like nothing's going to work out and you get hopeless and that sort of thing. And that is uh, an adjustment disorder with depression is what that is. When you have depression that is caused by a series of events that happens, you can have that kind of uh, depression. And sometimes that depression can turn into what we call a major depression. And I, I kind of wish we wouldn't use a, the same term because it implies that they're just kind of sad or something. But uh, a major depression happens when you start having more physical parts to the depression. Uh, more disturbed sleep or you're sleeping too much. You're either uh, usually you have a, a lack of appetite and you start losing a little weight or you might gain weight. Uh, you start having more trouble concentrating and uh, making decisions. Um, you're, you have more apathy. Uh, you're ju just energy of life seems to decrease. And so if, it's if, that is hap if that has caused because of a series of losses in your life, again, you started off with an adjustment disorder with depression and it turned into a major depression and if you are able to get in some therapy, uh, possibility of even getting on antidepressant medication, you get uh, you involve uh, the therapy and the medication, and over a period of several months, uh, you improve and you get better. Uh, then you can eventually you come off the medication and you get on with your life. Okay, so that that is one kind of depression that that there is. Now. There is another kind of depression called a major depressive disorder. And a major depressive disorder uh, is a genetic illness. It is a medical illness. You're born with it. It runs in the family. It doesn't, it, it, not necessarily uh, an immediate family, but it could be your aunt, it could be your grandfather, uh, it could be your sister, it could be whatever. But what happens with a major depressive disorder is that usually 98% of the time, after puberty, you start having spells of depression and for no particular reason. And you think it's because of this or because of that, but it's not necessarily related to events. And so you'll go into a spell of depression uh, where you will feel depressed, you'll have trouble concentrating, uh, you uh, not sleeping right, or you're sleeping too much, and, and you have all the symptoms of, of a major depressive dis, uh, episode, but um, it cycles in that you will cycle into it for a period of time, maybe several months to six months, and then you will cycle out of it. And then uh, it will happen again over a period of time. You may go another six months or a year, everything's fine, and then you'll cycle back into this spell of depression. And then uh, it, the same thing will happen. Now the problem is, uh, as you get a little bit older, see maybe it starts at 14 or 15 years old, and, but as you get a little bit older and you get to be 16, 17, 18, 19, 
the spells of depression may get more severe. See? And um, finally, when you're somewhere between 18 and 25, you'll have a much more severe episode. And during that time, you may start wondering why are you living? You know, it's, it's like the energy of life just kind of goes out of you. And you start thinking about uh, suicide. Uh, initially, you may not be actively suicidal, but as the depression continues to evolve, it will get worse. And during these uh, spells is when you need to see a psychiatrist. Now, 85% of people that get on an antidepressant medication, the person that puts them on the antidepressant medication is your general practice doctor, or it's an OBGYN or somebody like that, because nobody wants to go to a psychiatrist. You know, that's just just human nature. You know, you don't want to be think that well, I, I got you know, I got to go see a psychiatrist. You know, so uh, thank God the. Uh, um, either the general practice doctor or even pediatricians uh, will step in and do a pretty good assessment. And in fact, over the past uh, five or ten years, I have found that uh, family practice doctors have really been educated uh, to what is a major depressive disorder. And so they know the questions to ask, they have all these forms they get you to fill out when you come in, they really talk about uh, you know, are you suicidal and know how to approach that? I mean, the good ones do. They, they know how to do that. So what happens is most of the time a general practice doctor will start the antidepressant. They'll try to get the person into uh, psychotherapy, you know, hooked up with a, a good therapist because you got to do both. Because what happens is uh, the medication, uh, even if the medication works, by the time you finally get to somebody and you get started on a medication, you, and as a teenager or young adult, you've had many years where you have developed the persona of a depressed person. Now, what's the persona of a depressed person? Persona, the persona of a depressed person is that you're inadequate, that something's wrong with you, that you're lesser than other people, that you, other people seem to know more about things, they're more attractive than you, they're more capable than you, and that sort of thing. That's depression. So when you are in your development and you start taking on that identity because you have a major depressive disorder, by the time you finally get treatment, and by the grace of God that you know, medicine works right and you feel better, even though you're feeling better, you still have this identity that something's wrong with you. See? So the therapy is just as critical as the medication. I cannot emphasize that more. Now, um, of course, most people don't get into treatment. You know, and they try to suck it up or, or they try to uh, avoid that they've got a problem and they just assume that they're just an inadequate soul, so to speak. But, uh, but the ones that do get into treatment, when somebody comes to me and I have to, I have to sort out, is this a, a major depressive episode 
from a bunch of events that have happened in a person's life? Is this a major depressive disorder, which is a medical problem that they're going to have for the rest of their life? Okay. Major depressive disorder is like having high blood pressure or diabetes. It is a genetic illness. If you've got it, you got it. And we know that about 15% of the population has a major depressive disorder. Okay? And how do, you, how do you diagnose it? How do you sort it out? Well, you sort it out by getting a good history and, and seeing this cycling that seems to happen that starts after puberty and that sort of thing. And then you, if you get to know the patient, I would say first time I meet a patient, I can, I can diagnose it pretty, pretty accurately at least 80% of the time. And if I see them several times, I can get more like 90 plus percent that this is what they have. Now the other kinds of depression, um, and I'm going to come back and talk about medications a minute, uh, but I wanted to finish kind of talking about some of the other kinds of depression. The other kinds of depression are people that have, number one, a post-traumatic stress disorder. Now people that have a post-traumatic stress disorder, um, these are people who have had some type of major trauma that they did not expect that happened in their life. Either a horrible car wreck where people died, or they were sexually abused by their grandfather when they were eight years old, or uh, their parents died, you know, different, just horrible kind of stuff, you know. And it was something they did not expect, and, um, and it hit them. Now, what we have come to understand more clearly about post-traumatic stress disorder is that um, there are some people that go through some pretty horrible events and they, they, have, uh, they can have some post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms for a while, but then with therapy uh, over a period of time and it gets better. It, it becomes more of an adjustment reaction. But we don't understand exactly why, but some people when they have a trauma, it will stick with them for a long time. And so what we have found is that at least 7% of the population who experiences some kind of uh, trauma, major trauma, that uh, they cannot get it out of their head. They, they have nightmares uh, of the event. They have uh, these things called flashbacks. Most of a flashback is um, what I call an emotional flashback. They can be like in a room like this and somebody comes in and sits down next to them and it, it reminds them of the person who traumatized them or, or they could be driving in a car and hear a certain sound and, and they feel like they're back in the event, the trauma. They know they're in the present but they feel like they're in the trauma. And so they start having that emotional reaction. Their heart rate goes up, they get very upset and get frightened. So you can have uh, Depression can be a major part of post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's not a major depressive disorder, see? And, and so you have to sort that out. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because antidepressant medications don't help that as much. It doesn't work as well. And so uh, those sorts of folks, those folks 
need to be involved with a special kind of psychotherapy, like uh, what we call cognitive therapy. It's a more directive kind of therapy. There's a, an, and part of the cognitive therapy is called DBT therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, which is more, they're, they're, they look at coping skills, they look at more education, more directive kind of therapy versus someone who gets into general psychotherapy, which is a more insight-oriented therapy, where the person does more, the patient does more talking and the, and the therapist kind of helps them to think through their life. And then there's a, um, an, another relatively large group of folks that have a borderline personality disorder. Now, you're born with a borderline personality disorder. It's, it's kind of like a major depression in that it starts kicking in usually after puberty. But the issue has to do with a misinterpretation of being abandoned um, or um, put down. You know, that the person, you know, in a relationship, they'll misinterpret what somebody's doing as a rejection or an abandonment or, or a person being put down in some way. So what happens with uh, folks that have a borderline personality disorder is they have intense emotional reactions to that. And so, and you may know some folks like this, you know, that they, you know, you're, you just say something and all of a sudden they're all upset and, and, and uh, feel like that you have done something to them and, and you're trying to understand what you've said or done. And, um, and these poor folks, they, um, uh, after a period of time, they may settle down or they may not and they'll just either in, uh, incorporate that into th their sense of self that, they, that something's wrong with them and that's why this person said that to them and, and that sort of thing. And they can become very depressed and they can become very suicidal very quick. This is not a major depression. It is a borderline personality disorder. And so you, you, in order to make that diagnosis, you have to know the person over several periods, you know, several sessions at least and get to know them. And then you finally start realizing that, that the depression that you're dealing with is more of a borderline personality disorder with the depression. Um, now to make everything even more complicated is that you can have a borderline personality disorder and you can also have a major depressive disorder with that same person, see? And so if that's the case, that person needs to be on an antidepressant. But an antidepressant will not stabilize a borderline personality disorder just in itself. Okay? Now, as a physician, um, you know, I always want to throw some medicine at somebody and hope they get better. But, uh, but I've realized over the years that it just doesn't work that way. You know, I mean, uh, um, now, if you have a major depressive disorder, you have to um, be on an antidepressant or you won't get better. You can do therapy until the cows come home, but, but you are not going to get the person better until you get them on the right antidepressant. But there's a lot of depressions that antidepressants are not going to treat. That's my point, okay? Is there any questions about 
that before I go into more specifics about medication? Does that make sense? I mean, is that, uh, do you understand what I'm trying to sort out here, the different kinds of depression? Um, I guess, you know, an, another kind of depression, uh, I mean, you can have all kinds of depression um, that's not necessarily a major depressive disorder, but folks that have a chronic addictive disease can have a, a significant depression that's not a major depressive disorder. Uh, addictive disease, people that do not get into recovery, um, even if they stop using, if they don't get into recovery, and I'm gonna talk about this when I go into talking about addiction. Uh, they don't get into recovery and find a connection with God, which is part of the, the 12 steps in terms of getting out of your sense of self and getting connected into a relationship with God and, and connection through other people. If you don't get that connection right, you become very empty. And that emptiness is very lonely. It it's, uh, creates a, a serious depression. And people uh, finally wonder what they're doing even living. So you can end up in suicide and that sort of thing. And it's very serious. I wish I could throw a medicine at these people and get it fixed. But a medicine uh, for some of this just doesn't work. You have to uh, get into a connection, get out of yourself and get into a connection through other people. And in, in that connection, you start finding your connection with God and that get re-energizes your energy of life. But some of the folks uh, that are addicted, um, they finally just get, you know, it just, it just sucks them completely dry. Um, okay, so medication. If you were to come to me and um, you have, and I get a good history from you, and uh, it's clear to me that you have a major depressive disorder and I start you on an antidepressant medication. You have a 70% chance that if I start you on what we call an SSRI, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, like Prozac or Zoloft or Lexapro, you have about a 70, if it's Lexapro, you have almost 75% chance you're going to have a good result in the treatment of your depression, uh, and you're going to start feeling better within three days to 10 days. And you're not going to have any side effects, which is great. And so, um, so let's say I, Lexapro is the most prescribed antidepressant medication right now and it has been for many years, because it is the most potent SSRI. But you have a 30% chance you're not gonna get better on, on an SSRI, and or you're gonna have side effects. And you've got a 3% chance that, uh, that in fact you're gonna get more depressed. And so, and this is where I've been impressed with some of the general practice doctors, is they, they tell patients, they have this sheet, you know, they kind of go through, they tell them right off, you know, these are potential side effects, 
And one of the potential side effects is you may have a paradoxical reaction to the medicine and over the next week or two, you might get more depressed or even suicidal. And if that's the case, you stop taking them, you call us and you stop taking the medicine. Now, there's a, another group of antidepressants called SNRI, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. It increases serotonin and norepinephrine. And these are drugs like Effexor and Prestique and Cymbalta, um, um, Remeron, um, and some people genetically don't have enough serotonin and norepinephrine. So what would happen is if I put you on the Lexapro, you might get 50% better. But it's like, Dr. Lee, you know, I do feel some better, but I'm, I just don't feel right. And I'll say, well, you need to get in therapy and all this stuff, and then see them for a couple of weeks, and it's just not right. But if I, then I switch to an SNRI, they may get better. And then there's another group of people who are genetically low on both serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So I would have to use like Lexapro and Wellbutrin. Wellbutrin increases dopamine. And like, Dr. Lee, why are you putting me on all these different medications? You know, just give me one medicine and let me get better, you know? And, and I'll say, look, I'm doing <laughs> the best I can here, but, but we, this is not an exact science here. You know, it's like I can, I can get pretty close to it most of the time, but, uh, but I do know that we're all a little different. And there's just not a pill that's going to, and this was the problem when Prozac came out 36 years ago, and everybody thought this was, this was the best thing since sliced bread. They found out that it wasn't because 30% of people either got worse or it didn't work. So you have to keep working with it. And so what happens is the general practice doctor or the OBGYN, if they're trying different medicines and it's not working, that's when they're going to say to you, you need to go see a psychiatrist. You should have seen one to begin with, but, it, but that's, you know, you need to go see a psychiatrist. And most people are going to say, well, I don't want to see a psychiatrist. And so they'll say, well, you just have to, because he knows how to mix and match some of these medicines depending on genetically where you have a deficit of these neurotransmitters. And we might also even add in a mood stabilizer with it, like Abilify. And um, Abilify, I don't know if y'all remember the commercials um, when Abilify used to cost a fortune, now it's not expensive. But this woman would be walking down a path and flowers would start growing and all this stuff. And so any, anytime you see a commercial on TV, somebody's making a lot of money. Just, just remember that. But so for a year, I would not prescribe any Abilify. But um, finally I did, and, um, and some people got better. So you add the Abilify to the antidepressant. So you might have Lexapro and Abilify. And something about that combination makes the antidepressant work better. 
Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because uh, sometimes you have to use a variety of medications to treat a major depressive disorder. You just have to. And uh, it's not that it's polypharmacy, it's just uh, it has to do with your genetic makeup. Now, I want to um, explain how an antidepressant works on a biological level. Your brain is made up of uh, several billion neurons. Now, each neuron has a purpose. You have your eyeball neurons, you got your foot neurons, uh, you've got every neuron does a certain thing. Now, um, each neuron is connected with every other neuron in your brain through a series of wires called dendrites and axons. So your eyeball neuron knows what your foot neuron is doing. It's really, we, we, you know, you can't even begin to explain how unbelievable your brain is and, and what it does. Uh, in fact, your brain, you, re you remember, you're recorded in your brain every second of your life. Every second of your life. You can, uh, when they've done, uh, neurosurgeons uh, have done surgery on the brain when people have to be awake. And, you know, and they have part of the skull removed and they have to be awake. And they can hit a certain part of your brain and you can have a memory of when you're seven years old walking out the back door and hearing the birds singing and feeling the sun on your face. But you know, we can't remember everything we've always done or we, we it just, you can't do that because you, you couldn't function. But, but I'm just saying that your brain is unbelievable, the capacity of what the memory and the capacity of what it can do, we've only begun to really understand the brain. The, probably 50 years from now, when we look back on what we really understand about the brain today, we, we would think uh, it was prehistoric or something, you know, but because it, it, there's, we'll be able to do things uh, 50 years from now that we can't even dream of now. But, okay, my point is that what happens is the, when one neuron connects with another neuron, it connect, the, the wires come down, and there's an area called a synapse. You can, if you were to take a piece of your brain and slice it up, you can see under a micron microscope the actual synapse. So the electrical, and so if I'm walking down the street, and I don't have any shoes on, <coughs> and there's glass, my eyeball neuron has to tell my foot neuron to step around the glass. So it sends an electrical message down, and at this area called the synapse, when the, when the electricity, because it, it, it runs off of electricity like a light bulb, when it comes down to this area, it releases chemicals called neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and they have docking sites on this foot neuron. So they dock, and when they all dock, 
it creates an electrical charge that goes down to your foot and you, you move your foot a certain way. Well, if you have a major depressive disorder, genetically, you don't have enough either serotonin or norepinephrine or dopamine to make the jump right, see? And we have come to understand that th because of that shortage, you have a major depressive disorder. It's also the same thing for a generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is 15% is, uh, of the population, and it's caused by the same problem. There's a genetic uh, lack of enough neurotransmitter, see? And so that's why when, when you treat an anxiety disorder, like a generalized anxiety disorder, uh, or what, there's another anxiety disorder called a social phobia, um, you use an antidepressant and say, well, I'm not depressed, I have anxiety. I'm just nervous all the time. I've been nervous all the time since I was 15 years old. I just worry about everything. <clears throat> and I'll say, well, the real name to antidepressants is antidepressant slash anti-anxiety disorder medications, but it's too long of a word to say, so I call them antidepressants. So, uh, but we do know that also 80% of people that have a major depressive disorder are going to have also a generalized anxiety disorder. And 80% of people that have a generalized anxiety disorder also have a major depressive disorder. Because it's, it's from the same kind of principle, but genetically some people are more one than the other. Okay? So, um, so that's what's happening in your brain. <clears throat> so if I were to start you on Prozac, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, if I were to start you on Prozac, then what happens is when this serotonin is released, it has to be broken down by this enzyme called monoamine oxidase. Now, I know this is getting a little too technical, but, but bear with me here for a minute. Monoamine oxidase breaks down the serotonin into tyramine and some other thing, and it all trickles back into the, this area of the synapse and it remakes serotonin. Well, if I use some Prozac, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and I inhibit that enzyme monoamine oxidase, the serotonin does not break down and accumulates in the synaptic cleft. And it comes up to normal, to where it's supposed to be. Because you got, if you have a deficit in serotonin, or if you have a deficit in norepinephrine, and I'm using Effexor, see? <clears throat> so, within three days to 10 days, it comes up to, to normal, and you start feeling better, see? So, these antidepressants are truly holistic medications. They take what you have, and they bring it back to a state of normality, see? It's not that it gives you serotonin, or gives you norepinephrine, or gives you dopamine, if, it, if it's Wellbutrin, gives you dopamine. It, um, it just takes what you have, and it doesn't allow it to break down so that it can build back up to normal. Now, if I gave you 20 milligrams of Prozac, and three days to 10 days, you started feeling some better. 
and I got you back to see me in two weeks. Dr. Lee, I think I'm doing better. You having any side, no, no side effects. I'm a, I feel fine during the day. I don't feel racy. I don't uh, feel emotionally flat. You know, I'm sleeping okay, whatever. <clears throat> Say, okay, well, let's stay with this. It takes a month to reach maximum benefit. Now, all that works great if you take your medicine every day because it's kind of like you're putting this Prozac into a bucket that has a hole in the bottom, see? And, the, and it's always coming out. So if you forget to take the medicine one day, it will drop down below the therapeutic level and the next day you may be okay, but the next day you probably won't be okay because it takes a couple more days to build it back up. So when I try to tell people is that, um, if you forget to take your medicine one day and you remember at six o'clock at night, you take your medicine at six o'clock at night and then you take it again the next day because you're going to, otherwise you're going to get behind and that's going to create these mood swings. Now what percentage of people are going to take their medicine every day? Guess. 30%. Human beings are not reliable. <laughs> and now, the reason they did studies, I, I, I'm just making a joke, but because uh, there's some people that actually are reliable, but uh, <clears throat> it's human nature that we do not take our medication. And what I mean by that and this is some of the struggle that y'all may be having with your children, because I know I had it with mine. <clears throat> Even the people that really believe in the process and want to take their medicine, it's human nature to forget to take your medicine. Why is that? Because if you're taking your medication, it means you're sick. If you're not taking medication, it means you're not sick. Now that doesn't make any sense, but that's the way our brain works, see? So the reality is that people just will not take their medicine every day until they, and they get worse, and. They can't figure out why they're getting worse, and then they're coming back and talking to me, Dr. Lee, this doesn't work right. And now the first thing I'm gonna ask them is, are you taking your medicine? And what do you think the first thing they're gonna tell me? Oh yeah, I'm taking my medicine. And I'll say, are you sure you're taking your medicine? Well, I might have missed it a time or two, and uh, so I give them this big lecture about it and uh, send them on their way, and hopefully they'll start taking it regular. But, um, but that's a big issue, is uh, compliance with the medication. And uh, with our children, um, many of our children, even our adult children, um, they're always trying to prove that they're okay. You know, and they want to have their own life, and they want to uh, make their own decisions and, and on and on. And they don't want to imply to us that there's something wrong with them that we have to step in and try to help them out. And so it's always a fine line, and that's what, I guess that's 
the core of what therapy is. I know my wife and I uh, trying to get my daughter Ashley uh, in therapy when she was a teenager and um, she and my wife and I would, would try to meet at the therapist's office to make sure Ashley got, had gotten there and sometimes she wouldn't come and so we started seeing the therapist and uh, ourselves because you got to pay for the therapy session, you know. So, um, but it was the best thing we ever did because uh, uh, getting in therapy as a parent and as a couple um, sometimes is critical. And I, you know, even as a psychiatrist, even as a, the expert on the subject, <clears throat> you know, I, I didn't think that's what we needed, you know, but I guess God had a different plan. And so, um, with Ashley not showing up, it made us start talking to each other about things instead of blaming each other. You know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you set that limit? Or you were too harsh on her, or you didn't, wasn't harsh, you know, all this kind of stuff that you do. And uh, it's very important that as parents that we, um, we get the right kind of support to help us to communicate with each other and to understand what's going on because it's it's really more than we really understand we really need other people to help us with this you know because it's it's such a struggle we love our children so much and there's and when they're struggling and uh and they're not taking their medicine or they're not showing up for the appointment or whatever uh we have to figure out ways to uh channel our energies so that we come together and support each other in making the right decisions to try to help them out. Okay, so back uh, back to the story here with uh, the medication. I mean, that's just the medication. We got we have to get the medication going, but then you have to get them involved in therapy as well. <coughs> now, is there any questions about that? About the yes, sir. So when you're mentioning the major depressive disorder, how there's seasons where they go through that. So when they get on the medication, is that something that they could be on for a specific season and then come off of, or they, they just need to get on it and kind of get Well, it, unfortunately, the cycling of a major depressive disorder is not, does not have rhythm. It, it, it doesn't cycle right you know, where you can predict it. Now there is a special kind of major depressive disorder called a seasonal affective disorder. Now seasonal affective disorder, 90% uh, of the time are people that live in Michigan and uh, Washington and, and, the, and Canada. That, because they have, uh, it's a genetic thing. It's a special kind of major depressive disorder. And what happens with those guys is that they're fine until about uh, October or November. And then when the, the, and it has to do with sunlight, when uh, the days get shorter, and up there they get short, you know, when they get shorter they get depressed, and then about March they start coming out of their depression. And so they have, they could, they could do that, but, uh, and I've, I've had a, um, a handful of these patients I've seen that are transplants from up there and they come down here 
and uh, and then I put them on the anti and but I tell them just to stay on the antidepressant, you know, just to stay on it regular. Um, I think the concept of understanding major depressive disorder as a lifetime illness is a hard concept for people to take in. Uh, and all I can say is that <clears throat> it's like having high blood pressure and diabetes. And people seem to understand, yeah, I guess that's true, you know, that I, if I had high blood pressure, I need to stay on my high blood pressure medicine. But they don't seem to, to really grasp the, uh, the major depressive disorder one. They, they, they want to be on an antidepressant for a year and then come off of it. And then they always mess up. You know, when they come off of it, uh, they're okay for a while, and then, <clears throat> then it comes back on them. And then they feel like they want to interpret it to be, well, it was an event, or this happened, or, you know, I moved to a different place, or I had a different job, and that's why I got more depressed. And, but no, it's a major depressive disorder. Does it have any type of, um, uh, um, does it lose its effect? Is it, do you have to increase the dosage over, over time? <coughs> Uh, it's a great question. Uh, with some of the SSRIs, there are some people that develop a tolerance, like with Prozac, for example. About 10% of people on Prozac, over a period of time, you have to increase the dose. But uh, the other antidepressants, <clears throat> I have not found that to be the case. Uh, I, I do a lot of work with young adults, and so what happens is they'll say, well, Dr. Lee, when, when I was 15 years old, 50 milligrams of Zoloft did the job, but it's not working now. And I'll say, well, because your illness didn't come into full bloom until you became a young adult. So at 15, you started having major depressive episodes, but at 22, it really got bad. You know, because it, it, it's kind of like high blood pressure. High blood pressure will start with uh, most uh, uh, white folks uh, about 45 years old. And it, and it starts off easy and then it gets worse. And um, uh, so that there are these ages where it really hit peaks out and you have to be on the medicine. Do you think that uh, like dieting and proper nutrition and exercise and any of those just kind of other holistic things could help well, just generally? Uh, now just lifestyle, the right lifestyle is critical, but it doesn't replace an antidepressant. It's, it's like you've got to go to bed on time, you've got to get up on time, because you've got your biological clock. It takes two weeks to calibrate your biological clock. Now what do, do young adults do? They don't, they don't go to bed every night at, at 10.30. On, on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, they're going to stay up till 2 o'clock. Well, that completely throws their biological clock off, and then when that happens, the cortisols are all messed up, everything's messed up, and so it creates these mood swings with their major depression. So a lot of what I do when I'm uh, giving lectures to the young adult is lifestyle. And, and I, I say, say to them, I, I used to be a young adult, I understand, but if you truly have a major depressive disorder, you, you have got to get in bed approximately the same time, plus or minus an hour. And I talked to them about 
their diet about carbs in particular because they always like to eat a bunch of carbs and stuff to get that that sugar load and create seas boots and I say well you can't do that either you're gonna have to make sure you get protein and uh, greens and beans and fruit and, and so I try to help with that we talk about cigarettes talk a lot about cigarettes and we talk a lot about marijuana because they all want to smoke marijuana. It's like, Dr. Lee, I got an anxiety problem and that marijuana really helps. I'll say, I understand. But you'll never get better if you're smoking marijuana. I know on the front end it calms you down, but on the back end, your anxiety disorder is always going to get, and so I'd explain it to them biologically and we go through all that. So I think uh, a big part of the therapy that we do uh, has to do with lifestyle. So it's, it's, I do the medication, but the therapist is going to be talking about lifestyle, and I talk about lifestyle with my patients too, but uh, exercise, what they eat, how they sleep, uh, relationship, you know, just the whole nine yards. If you don't, it's, it's like a diabetic. If I had diabetes uh, and I was on insulin, I would not be able to eat six Krispy Kreme donuts. Now, I love Krispy Kreme donuts. They come right off the conveyor belt, and they, you can smell them going in the door, and you put one in your mouth, you don't even have to bite down on it, and it melts down. But if I had diabetes, I wouldn't be able to do that. I mean, I could do it, but it's going to mess me up, and I have to get in touch with the reality of the situation that my lifestyle has to change if I have a medical problem. And a major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, are medical problems. It requires a lifestyle change. I know you're going to talk about addiction, but is it possible that if someone addressed an addiction, then they would no longer experience depression, depending on what kind of depression, what category they that if they did what now? If they um, got in recovery uh -huh. and, and yeah, with their addiction, uh -huh. then the, any depression symptoms they had could go away. Oh, yeah. Um, that's an excellent point. When, we, um, when I started this in, in 81, um, we had the 28-day programs, you know. And so... At that time, there was a big divide between psychiatrists and addictionologists. And the addictionologists felt like they, they took an extreme position, which was if you just got into recovery and you stopped your, what you're doing and you get connected with God and you work your 12 steps, that you will work it all out. And I would say half of that was very true. But some people also have a major depressive disorder. So that's the point I'm making, is that you can have depression <clears throat> that can be secondary to an addiction, a long-term addiction. You know, somebody, maybe they've been drinking for 30 years or 10 years or something, and, and they, they develop a depression because of their addiction. But what happens is, with uh, most of the time, when I get a good history, it becomes real clear that they developed 
they had a major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder as a teenager. And even though they might have been smoking some marijuana and different things, say they weren't, they didn't hit the full, full addiction thing until they got into their 20s. <clears throat> but the history told me they had depression and anxiety started before the addiction. And so I can say to them very clearly, you got both. You know, you have an addictive disease, which you're going to have for the rest of your life. And you have to be very aware of that. And you have to work your program of recovery, but you also have a generalized anxiety disorder. And if you don't keep a treatment for that, you're going to relapse trying to deal with your anxiety. Because the alcohol and the marijuana and the Xanaxes and all that other stuff gives you instant relief. Anything that gives you instant relief, you've got to be careful about it because usually instant relief means that it's just not going to carry the day. You know, it's, it's, there's going to be a problem. Okay. Any other questions about depression and anxiety? One quick question. My, my son's got uh, hands OCD. If I remember correctly, he's taking drugs that are antidepressants. Yes. And, and for that. Yeah. Right. And he hadn't been diagnosed necessarily with depression, or not yet, anyway. Yeah. Um, what is the correlation? So, what's the correlation between? Well, obsessive compulsive disorder mm -hmm. is a special kind of anxiety disorder, and so. Uh, the treatment of that is an antidepressant medication. You know, not like I said, an it's an antidepressant slash anti-anxiety disorder medication. And so, but there are two medications that are antidepressant, well, one's an antidepressant, one's not, is Luvox and Anaphronil <coughs> that specifically treats obsessive compulsive disorder. He's on Luvox now. Yeah. So, Luvox is not an antidepressant, but it is specific for obsessive compulsive disorder. And it's tough to treat. You've got to get the dose up. Sometimes you have to add in a mood stabilizer with it. Uh, you've got to get them involved in therapy. Um, but you can stabilize it. But some, some obsessive compulsive disorders are tough. Yeah, and it's, uh, I know I've had many patients with it that they, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. And because you feel like the obsessions and the compulsions are irrational, and you know they're irrational, but you still feel them, and, uh, and it doesn't make sense. Um, okay, well, I'm, uh, have I been talking too much? I have. Uh, okay, let's get right going into addictive disease. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to give some generalities, okay, and it's not 100%, but I want to get, get across some, some major points here. There are two kinds of addiction. There's what I call the genetically pre-wired addictions and the addictions that are not. Okay? Now, see, these are generalities, not 100%. Alcoholism, which is about 15% of the population, 
is a genetic illness. It's not one gene. It's probably four or five genes that have to come together. These people can outdrink anybody. My daughter, when she was 17 years old, was drinking a fifth of vodka a day, <clears throat> and I didn't know it. She could give this lecture, she was very intelligent, she could give this lecture and look completely sober, and she was messed up. And if she were to drink a handle, which is more than a fifth, she would look messed up. But she was genetically pre-wired that she could take in large quantities of alcohol, and it made her feel great. She, she was more motivated when she was drinking. She was less anxious about things because she was always kind of anxious about you know, relationships and everything. So she, she would just feel fine, see? Now, 85% of the population cannot drink like that. They just can't. They can't metabolize the alcohol right, it, uh, acid aldehyde builds up, you're throwing up, you're dizzy, you know, every other such thing. But she could drink a fifth of vodka and uh, get up in the morning and, and go to school and be perfectly fine. If I have a couple of drinks, I'm messed up. And, uh, and when I get up in the morning, it's like, why did I do that? You know, and, and that's just a couple of drinks, see? Now, uh, the other kind of um, genetically pre-wired addiction is opioid addiction. Now, about 4 to 6% of the population has a, a genetically pre-wired opioid addiction. These folks can... 4 to 6 now, there's a lot more people getting messed up on opioids than 4 to 6%, but I'm saying these 4 to 6%, when they, they can tell you the first opioid they did, like the first Percocet or the first Lortab or the first whatever, because when they took it, they didn't get high, they got right. Their, their thinking was clearer, they were motivated to get things done, they felt more comfortable in crowds, um, and they're thinking, why isn't everybody taking this stuff? But the problem is the other 96% of the population, I don't know about y'all, but if, when I do an opioid because, you know, for pain, I get this fuzzy kind of thing, and I get constipated, and uh, sometimes I can't go to sleep, but I'm sleepy, and it's more of a dysphoric kind of feeling. See? So I can tell, because I've done a lot of work with chronic pain patients. This is how I got into addiction treatment, was uh, working with chronic pain patients. That most chronic pain patients can do opioids, and they don't feel, it doesn't give them a special meaning of life. You know, it just gives them pain relief. Now, over a period of time, they can become physically dependent on them, and, and, get, and it gets complicated. <clears throat> but the true opioid person, um, they get a special feeling, and it's a good feeling. It's not necessarily, like I said, it's not necessarily a high thing, but it's a, a they, just, they just feel more complete. And um, now what happens is they'll start using it regular, because an opi like a Percocet only lasts about four to six hours, 
And so they got to get another one. And so they get another one. And then they get going steady with it. And after about four months, they start developing a tolerance to the benefits of it, and they have to increase the dose. Well, a 30 milligram roxycodone on the street costs $30. And if you need three of these a day to get right, that's $90 a day. And I don't know too many young adults that have that kind of money unless they have, I don't know, trust funds or something that, <clears throat> that they have that kind of access. So what they're going to do is they're going to find something that's cheaper. And that something that's cheaper is heroin. It's significantly cheaper and it gives them a bit bigger high. So they end up getting, getting on that and coming off of heroin is tough. Okay, so it takes about four to six months for that process to happen to where they end up in an addiction. Now they, they were in addiction, they were in the process of addiction, but they truly become an opioid use disorder. <clears throat> now what is happening, oh, well first of all before I get into that, <clears throat> the, um, the other kinds of addiction is the, the stimulant addictions, the uh, hallucinogen addictions, um, and, and then there's a lot of behavioral addictions, but I'm just going to mainly talk about the substance addiction. <coughs> but methamphetamine, I can take anybody and take them to a meth house and let them use meth for the weekend, and um, they will, when they come out of the meth house, they will um, be glad they're out of the meth house and they go home and they sleep for two days and I will never do that again. But what's happened is their brain has changed some to where the craving to use meth is so powerful that next weekend they're going to go back to the meth house. You do not have to be genetically pre-wired to get that. <clears throat> Same goes with crack cocaine. And, the, and most of the stim, all the stimulants. But meth is the most efficient stimulant that really squeezes out dopamine. <clears throat> now, what happens with the genetically pre-wired addicts, in particular, is that your brain is a, like I said, is a wonderful organ. It runs automatically. It releases different chemicals, to, it, it's constantly measuring your thyroid, it's constantly measuring your estrogen and testosterone, it's constantly measuring all this stuff and it, it releases uh, from the pituitary uh, the chemicals that are necessary for your organs to, to be in perfect balance. Well when you drink or when you do opioids and, and do some other things too, <clears throat> but particularly I'm talking about opioids and alcohol, you squeeze out dopamine and endorphins in your brain. Well, your brain can't figure out what you're doing, and so it's think, it thinks, well, I guess he knows more about it than me, so I'm going to start shutting down. So when you start using regularly, the brain continues to shut down. And finally, after about four months of regular use, four to six months, 
your brain finally stops its automatic thing. And so in order to release dopamine and some endorphins and different other chemicals, <coughs> you have to drink or you have to do opioids. So what happens is if you don't do that, you start getting going into withdrawal and then you start craving until you do use. At that point, you're an officially, you're an addict. See? You could be genetically pre-wired to be an alcoholic, but until you go through that process of changing your brain to become an addict, you're not an addict. I'll give you an example. My wife, her father was an alcoholic. <clears throat> and when she was like 16 years old, she realized that she could outdrink everybody. Well, her dad and mom, when he, when he would get intoxicated, the household was not a pleasant place to be. <clears throat> and so she realized at that age, if I keep drinking, I'm going to end up like this, so I'm not going to do it. And she stopped drinking. And we know there are studies, adult children of alcoholics have less alcoholism than their parents because of that experience. So there is a behavioral component that can stop an addiction before it turns into one. But you have to have this chemical thing that happens in your brain before you become an addict, in order to become an addict. Now once you stop, you can see how when you stop, you're going to have months for your brain to crank back up and start working right. Well during that time, you have a high relapse potential because you don't feel right. And that's where you've got to be in a program. You have to be connected. That's what the 12 steps is all about. See. And that's why you have to connect with other addicts in recovery <clears throat> to get that connection so that you're able to get through that period of time and stay sober. Any questions about that? Does that make sense? So it's truly a medical disease. Addiction is truly a medical disease. Now, in order to change, <clears throat> You have to want to change. If you don't want to change, it's not going to happen. So in the 12-step in the book, the big book, in the back of the book in Appendix 2, it says that, <clears throat> that you have to have willingness. You have to have complete honesty, honesty with yourself and with everybody else about what's going on and what you're doing. And you have to have open-mindedness. You have to be open-minded to let people talk to you and give you direction. Now, that's a, that's a pretty steep order for our young adults and our children who are trying to prove that they're in control of themselves. But it can happen. Just like y'all were talking to start this thing, and I, and I was thinking uh, in Genesis, when uh, God came to uh, Abraham and Sarah, and he said, okay, this time next year, we're going to have a child. And Sarah laughed. And uh, he said, why is Sarah laughing? And he said, well, 
you know, we're old. He said, is anything impossible for God? And you've got to, you've got to stay connected with that. There's nothing that's impossible for God. And so you just keep working with it, trying to help our children, trying to give them the right kind of support, not enabling them, but giving them direction and, and praying to God that they'll be open enough to allow us to help them. And one day, maybe they will. Most of the time, what happens is with some maturity, they start realizing that they do need some help, and they start allowing you to help them. And, um, and then you, again, you try to get the right balance of trying to help them and not enabling them. Now, is there any, any questions about addiction? Yes. What's that? Where does marijuana fall? Well, what happens with marijuana is that I think the studies are that 3% of the population are addicted to marijuana. But in the people that I work with, um, you know, a, a, I would say half of the young adults are smoking marijuana to uh, deal with their anxiety or deal with their depression and different things. And, um, if they're not addicted, I don't know who is because they've been, usually when they come to me, they've been doing this for at least a year or longer on a daily basis. So what I tell them when they come to Ridgeview, if it's a young adult, is the only way I can treat you is if you come and you come to our day program and you stay in our residence because I know if you're at home, you're going to be smoking marijuana. And if you're smoking marijuana, you're never going to get better. And so you just confront that head on. And I would say 80% of the time, with a little support from their parents, they will come in the residence and they'll stop smoking because they usually have gotten pretty sick of their psychiatric illness and they're ready to stop. <clears throat> well, they're not ready to stop smoking marijuana, but they're ready to get help. And if you can get them away from the marijuana for like a month, then you've got a chance because then I can educate them and all that other stuff and give them relief of their anxiety, give them relief of their depression enough to where they can see that continue, continuing smoking marijuana is just not going to work for them. Uh, most, most of our young adults understand that this is a chemical, you know, and it, it's like you, when you smoke it, you instantly feel something. That's not going to be the answer but they don't know what else to do sometimes. So you don't feel like the increased amount of THC in marijuana now that doesn't create the whole dependency thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the marijuana that, that's now, you know, the potency of the marijuana is just unbelievable. And in fact, some people have been smoking so much marijuana that they become psychotic. You know, it really distorts their reality. Most of the time I can get them to stop, sometimes I can't. Is it the same type of thing though as alcoholism and opioid addiction? I mean, is it that, is it that same sort of? It's the same, same kind of thing, but it's different. Each one of them is, is really very different. Um, the problem with marijuana is that it stays in your system so long. You know, the half-life is so long. 
And with alcohol, uh, at least when they stop drinking after a couple days, it's kind of out of their system. But with marijuana, when they stop, it's not out of their system. How long does it take for it to be out of their system? Well, let's say they've been smoking uh, a joint uh, a day for a year. And if they were to stop, I could probably do a urine drug screen for five to six weeks and still pick it up. But it's in their hair, it's in their bones, it's in everything. and. Um, now it's not as active each week. You know, after the first week, it's not as active. After the second week, it's really not very active at all. It's, but it's still in their system and it's still affecting them. Um, so I can just get them away from it for a couple of weeks, you know, I've got a chance. Yeah, marijuana, uh, is one of my biggest uh, obstacles. Um, it's just so prevalent in our society and our society does not see it as a problem. And it's a, it's, it's a serious problem, particularly for our young adults and, and teenagers. Uh, and it is grossly affecting their development. genetically predisposed, they just became psychologically dependent, and then can your body become physically dependent? See, I, for example, I could not become an alcoholic if I worked on it. I could work on it, I, like every day I'm going to try to drink another beer, you know, and, but I, I, and I, I guess I worked on it when I was in college, but I, I couldn't get there. And it's like, what am I doing? You know, all these, you'd think of their friends drinking, you know, on the weekend, having a good old time, and it just made me sick. And I thought, what am I doing? So I could not become an alcoholic if I tried. That's, that's my point. But an alcoholic, a good alcoholic can tell you that when they started drinking, it gave them something special. And then ev over a period of time, they developed, they, they started drinking regular until the changes happened. Sir, you said that the, the changes have to do with the, op with the dopamine and stuff in the brain. Could you use like Wellbutrin or something? No, it's a, it's a different, I tried doing that in, in my earlier years. And, it, and I still do it because when somebody comes in that's, that has meth addiction, methamphetamine addiction, <clears throat> their craving is so unbelievable. And I'll try to put them on Wellbutrin and like get it up to 300 milligrams. And uh, sometimes I think it might help. And uh, most of the time I don't think it does. Because you would think if you can get the dopamine up, you know, that maybe they won't crave it as much, but craving is a different mechanism that has to do with your limbic system. It does have to do with the lack, the lack of dopamine, but, but, it, but once you 
have been using regularly, it's like the limbic system remembers the high of the myth and it just won't let you forget it. And uh, so trying to deal with people with methamphetamine addiction is very difficult. It's, it, a lot of times they leave treatment early. <coughs> See, with alcoholism, <coughs> excuse me, alcoholism and, and opioid use disorder, I can put them on uh, naltrexone or Vivitrol and that will cut the craving down sometimes dramatically, but there's nothing that really cuts the craving down for methamphetamine and crack cocaine, that's, that's the other one. Well, there are some people that do. They're get, they can get addicted to anything. But what, what we understand is that the opioid receptor, something around the opioid receptor is involved with alcoholism. And so they, they do have a little relationship so that uh, alcoholics can become opioid use disorder people and opioid use disorders can become alcohol, alcoholics. And that's why, like now, Trexone and Vivitrol binds the opioid receptor, and when you bind the opioid receptor, you decrease the craving for both of them. But they're still very, very different addictions, but they seem to be happening, it seems to be happening at the same area of the brain. But that addictive personality thing's always been, because I, I know people that they're, you know, they, they're, they gamble, they drink, they do yeah. Whatever they do, they're, they're, they do it overboard. Yeah. They're to it. Well, many alcoholics are gamblers, um, and sometimes they get into a lot of sexual activity um, and that sort of thing. It has to do with pleasure. See, there's, there's and I won't, we've run out of time, but uh, the addiction has to do with pleasure. Pleasure, uh, squeezing out dopamine and endorphins, gives you this this kind of temporary feel good, see, versus uh, sustained joy and happiness. And you have to, if you've had many years of living your life on searching for pleasure <coughs> um, through gambling or sex or alcohol or whatever, then learning how to get sustained joy and happiness that's where the 12 steps comes in. And that takes time to, to develop that. It has to do with the connection through other people, caring for other people, the compassion with other people, and in there is God. And that's where you, that's a very different experience than a pleasure thing. Dr. Lee, thank you very much for that. Uh,